Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the first episode of the spring semester. I am your co-host, Deborah, and I am joined today by Janae. As many of you may know, February is Black History Month, so our topics for this month will be focused around the Black community. In this episode, we will be discussing the school-to-prison pipeline, but before we dive into that, we want to give you all a little background on Black History Month. Black History Month was created in 1926 in the United States when historian Carter G. Woodson and the Association for the Study of Negro Life in History announced the second week of February to be Negro History Week. The vision was to bring attention to his mission, help school systems coordinate their focus on the topic. Woodson chose the second week in February as it encompassed both Frederick Douglass' birthday on the 14th and Abraham Lincoln's birthday on the 12th. During the civil rights movement, Freedom Schools in the South embraced this week, and its curriculum message is the way to contribute to the mission. By the mid-60s, the most popular textbook for eighth-grade U.S. history classes mentioned only two black people in the entire century of history, and that problem could no longer be ignored. It was in that decade that colleges and universities across the country transformed the week into a Black History Month on campus. Now that we've given a brief history of this historical month, let's move on to our first topic, the school-to-prison pipeline. So according to the National Education Association, the school-to-prison pipeline refers to the policies and practices that are directly and indirectly pushing students of color out of school and on a pathway to prison, including, but not limited to, harsh school discipline policies that overuse suspension and expulsion, increased policing and surveillance that create prison-like environments in schools, over-reliance on referrals to law enforcement and the juvenile justice system, and an alienating and punishing high-stakes, test-driven academic environment. To add on to what Deborah said, and to put it basically in simpler terms, the school-to-prison pipeline is basically a disturbing national trend where children are funneled out of the public schools and into the juvenile and criminal justice systems. Many of, many of these children have learning disabilities, histories of poverty, abuse, or neglect, and would benefit from additional education and counseling. Instead, though, they are being isolated, punished, and pushed out. The ideology of zero tolerance in school discipline comes from the get tough on drugs and crime, policies of the 1980s. In the 1980s, we know that there was a move in the criminal justice and law enforcement world to move toward a taking a tough on crime stand. This led to a tripling in the national prison population over the last 30 years. The United States leads the world in its incarceration rate. We make up only about 5% of the world's population, but we incarcerate a full 25% of the world's imprisoned people. In the 1990s, the misguided super predator theory branded young people of color as criminals, not only per perpetuating a negative story about them, but also leading to increased punishments for them. So what comes to mind after hearing all this about like zero tolerance policies and how it all began like with the slave trade what comes to mind is what chelsea always says how you know the school to prison pipe pipeline is you know an effect of slavery which it very obviously is and basically the way i kind of think about it is that they can't enslave you anymore so they find other ways to suppress you i agree with you 100 percent, deborah that's such a good point to bring up and um, i'm so glad that chelsea even said that because it's not something that a lot of people think about they keep thinking oh it was so long ago it doesn't affect anyone anymore and that's just not true it affects us um, a lot today yeah this wasn't this was not even 50 years ago that this happened um so that's definitely it wasn't it wasn't long ago that was that was like yesterday 
Not at all. I think people just want to be comfortable with the fact that it was long ago. It makes them uncomfortable to think that it was, like you said, 50 years ago, that people are still alive that were um, in segregated schools. Yeah. Um, And I also think back to what you were saying about, like, Black History Month, how, like, there were only two black people in the history books. And we know that black history goes a long way. Um, The black community has contributed so much to the to the resources that society benefits from, but they get almost none of the recognition and that's just ridiculous to me. So let's dig a little bit deeper into the zero tolerance policies. Zero tolerance policies criminalize minor infractions of school rules, while cops in those schools lead to students being criminalized for behavior that should be handled inside the school. Students of color are especially vulnerable to push out trends in the discriminatory application of discipline. When it comes to enforcing the zero tolerance policies, white people are more likely to see behaviors in white students as need for medical attention, but when they see the same behaviors in black students as a cause for punishment. Yeah, and those zero tolerance policies, they often also mean like incredibly harsh punishments for students for quote unquote crimes that are not so serious. Florida, for example, was one of the early adopters of the zero tolerance policy. And half of the state schools have police officers who collectively arrested around 12,000 students in 2012. And the Florida Department of Juvenile Justice even admitted to the Orlando Sentinel that the majority of those arrests did not involve quote-unquote criminal acts. Instead, students were arrested for small things like disrupting class or using their cell phones at inappropriate times. And, you know, when I kind of like think about these zero-tolerance policies, it's not really one that comes to mind but it reminds me like of harsh punishment punishments and we laugh about it now but when my sister was in third grade she was in her classroom and she was trying to take a test and there was this white boy behind her that would always bother her and he would kick her chair and my sister was getting fed up so she would tell the teacher hey he's bothering me can you do something about it and the teacher was like just ignore it and my sister was like he's bothering me again can you do something about it? Or can I like move to a different seat? And the teacher was like, just deal with it. You're complaining too much. Just take your, your test. And so <laughs> my sister, he kicked her one more time and she got fed up. So she got up and she took off her belt and she hit him with her belt right there in the classroom. And um, obviously she got sent to the, the office, but like she had told the teacher like three times, four times, hey, he's bothering me, and the teacher chose not to do anything about it. So my mom did not get mad at her. She laughed, but at the end of that, she's like, you know, it's good. You got to defend yourself, otherwise no one else will. Um, But my sister, they wanted to expel her for that, while the kid, he didn't even go to the principal's office. You know, and it's just like, well, first of all, I kind of low-key think that that principal was a little racist because she had it out for my sister from the beginning, Um, And we were kind of like one of a handful of like students of color in that school. But it was it's just like a like a crazy story. If you think about it, like he was the one who instigated everything. He didn't even go to the principal's office. And my sister ended up not taking that test and failing it because this little boy kept bothering her. So that's kind of the story that comes to mind when I think about like. I guess the difference in the punishments that we receive. 
As mentioned previously, criminalization of students by authority figures in a huge part of the, is a huge part of the school-to-prison pipeline. In 2013 and 2014, about 70,000 students were arrested at school, according to a federal analysis that also shows that 70% of those arrested or referred to law enforcement are black or Hispanic. Black boys are at high risk as they are three times more likely to be arrested than white boys. Yeah, and the thing about criminalization is that once a child has a criminal record, their life is practically set. So kids who get a bad reputation in elementary school, they carry that reputation with them, so they are more likely to be singled out for punishment in the future. And when students get suspended, the class time they miss makes it harder to catch up academically. So they tend to give up and act out even more. And this, it begins a cycle that too often ends in a prison cell. That really breaks my heart when I think about it too hard that so many young black boys are sitting in jail for, like you said, something as simple as acting up in class. And their life is set at that point because... You know, who's going to get a scholarship with a criminal record or a decent job with a criminal record? It's just just really sad. Yeah. And another thing, too, is that if instead of, you know, punishing them, you would have helped them, you would have given them counseling, you would have given them extra resources, then that student, their entire life could have been saved and they would have never even ended up in an institution where once they got out, their life choices were basically basically set because they were so limited. Because um, as we all know, once you have that on your record, it's so difficult to get jobs and for people to like trust you. Even it doesn't even matter why you were there or what your what ended up getting you there. No one really cares about the story; they care about the paper, and that's so. Like you said, it's upsetting because of things like the school-to-prison pipeline, where oftentimes it doesn't seem like they had a choice in the matter. It's just like like it was set up for them from the beginning. So now we're going to talk about funding for public schools. In black and brown districts across the country, student performance is flat, poor, and minority students are experiencing staggering inequalities, and the picture is especially troubling for black students. A report from Ed Bill, which promotes equity in public schools, found that the average white school district got 13000 for every student in 2016, compared to the 11000 per student in districts that mostly served people of color. The money gap, a difference of roughly 2000 per student, originates in the way America pays for education, with locally run schools being tied to local control of taxes. Now, not to go off on a tangent, but I do want to talk about this a little bit, because from my experience, I grew up in Gary, a predominantly black um, neighborhood, and I went to school there until the eighth grade. In freshman year, we had to move because the schools, which I feel like it relates to this, were just feeling really bad. We didn't have books. We didn't have heat. We just didn't have anything. And then I moved 30 minutes away to a predominantly white neighborhood, and they had everything, brand new computers, iPads, so many books. I mean, extra books at that point where they could have definitely donated some over to the other district. So I feel like this topic kind of hits home for me because I was really shocked when I moved to um, Crown Point. I just saw how much they had, and I just didn't understand, like, why didn't we have this? Yeah, and to kind of, like, add on to that, numerous studies have actually shown that overcrowded classrooms with underqualified teachers without the resources to properly educate 
contribute to dropouts and delinquency, which in turn lead to criminal behavior in life. So, for example, the fact that schools in black neighborhoods can't afford enough books of good quality for their students. They can't afford new laptops. Like, I'm just kind of thinking right now with COVID, imagine how those schools are. Like, I can't even begin to imagine how challenging it is for a school that already doesn't receive enough funding, has so many students, overcrowded classrooms, and now all of a sudden each one of those students needs to have a laptop because they have to do online learning. Um, And obviously for schools that can't contribute or can't transfer over to online, that's just putting students at risk if they can't go online, but also that takes money. But yeah, so kids in lower income areas they end up having trouble socializing and they're at risk for criminal behavior and they often need those extra resources for learning and inclusion. So that means they not only need the help with textbooks, internet, and other resources, but they also need more counseling and tutoring as well as programs to prevent delinquent behavior. However, as Janae mentioned before, districts that serve minority and impoverished students often receive less funding. Um, For example, an NPR review mapped out government spending per student and compared two areas in Chicago just an hour apart. The lower income area was getting $9,794 in government funding per student, while the higher income suburb was receiving $28,639 per student. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about the No Child Left Behind Act of 2002. Recognizing the lack of funding in low-performing schools, President Bush signed the No Child Left Behind Act in 2002. This law was intended to boost the educational quality of low-performing schools by performing funding to, by promising funding to schools that achieve certain test scores. Despite the law's intention, studies have shown that many schools are pushing out low-performing students in order to show falsely high scores. One in-depth study of Florida K-12 system during a testing period found that low-performing children were likely to get suspended and expelled just prior to testing in order to prevent them from taking the test. That's pretty suspicious and obvious what they're trying to do there. And I think, obviously, this example is about, like, Florida's K-12 system, but I imagine that with that No Child Left Behind Act, this is definitely something that other schools adopted, where if they see a student who is low-performing, They're going to use any excuse, take advantage of those zero tolerance policies to make sure that those students aren't there when it's time to take tests so that that score doesn't affect the average scores of that school and they can get more funding. So it's really just a system that's supposed to be about education that was meant to help students learn has become all about money. And honestly, the school to prison pipeline in general, it's all about money. Just to move on, we want to kind of give some demographics to kind of put this on perspective and bring it a little closer to home. So we won't go far. Indianapolis Public Schools, 2019 to 2020 demographic information actually shows that 73.4% of IPS students are children of color, with 42.3% being black and 31.1% being Hispanic. However, children of color make up 79% of the in-school suspensions and 84% of -of out-of-school suspensions and 86% of expulsions. So I'm just going to talk about Indiana in general. Black students in Indiana are nearly four times as likely to get an out-of-school suspension than their white peers, according to state data, and twice as likely to receive an in-school suspension than white students. 
Indiana is also ranked fourth highest in the country when it comes to the rate of -of out-of-school suspensions for black teens in middle and high school, according to the Center of Civil Rights Remedies at UCLA. 24% or nearly a quarter of black middle school and high school students in Indiana have been suspended at least once. State data shows black students make up 12% of the state's population, yet compromise 26% of arrests on school property. No way that those numbers should be higher. Um, One statistic that stood out to me about like the state of Indiana, especially because I'm not from Indiana, I moved here my junior year of high school. Looking at that number of nearly a quarter of black students in Indiana have been suspended at least once. That's like one in four, and that's ridiculous. That's ridiculously high, especially given how much of a minority black students are in Indiana in total. You know, that number should not be that high. Um, So that just kind of shows how prominent this issue is, but also how unseen it is. Um, I feel like a lot of people I talk to, they don't even know what a school-to-prison pipeline is, which is ridiculous because, I mean, obviously they're not going to talk about the school-to-prison pipelines in school. That kind of defeats the purpose of their trickery. But it's also, I feel like everyone should know about this, Um, especially parents or people who are planning on starting a family. They should know what kind of, I guess, system their their children would end up going into. So I also kind of want to move this discussion along and kind of go back to a point I made earlier where the school to prison pipeline is all about money. So I feel like if we're going to say that, we need to talk about who benefits from the school to prison pipeline. And to make it simple, corporations are the ones who make money from privatized juvenile detention centers. Nationwide, about half of juvenile facilities, both short-term and long-term, are privately operated, according to the 2012 U.S. Department of Justin Prison Census. This is a higher percentage than the rate of privatization among adult prisons. And in 2009, there was actually a scandal related to this. It was the Kids for Cash scandal, where a Pennsylvania judge was discovered to have accepted $2.2 million dollars and bribes to send children to privatized juvenile prisons. And these included one teen who created a fake MySpace page and another one who cursed at somebody's mother. So really small things. And, you know, obviously this judge got caught and he was sentenced to 23 years. No, and he was sentenced to 28 years in federal prison. Well-deserved and probably should have been more, in my opinion, because he destroyed, like, the way I look at it, he didn't just, you know, send kids to prison. He destroyed lives. And I just think that's so sad because now I'm just thinking about the people who weren't caught, you know, who wasn't caught and destroyed someone's life. And they're sitting in prison right now or, in this case, juvie. So that just really makes me sad. And, um... Again, going back to like this, what you said, Janae, about how think about the people who don't get caught. Um, I think just the fact that the school to prison pipeline isn't very well known means that so many people get away with it. Um, take advantage of the fact that it's not common knowledge. Um, so I think that's why, you know, doing things like this where we're giving out information about it is so important because this is definitely stuff people need to know. 
Um, and I kind of want to go back to like the zero tolerance policies and talking about that and just talk about how ridiculous it is that these students are given criminal records and they are marked as problem children for things such as creating a fake MySpace page, cursing at someone's mother. Like that's literally child things. Like that's things that teenagers would do. So I don't know why that they would think, oh, jail time free that. Like it yeah. doesn't make sense to me. It's literally childish behavior. And um, something that comes to mind is that I feel like when you're young, people encourage you to make mistakes because they're like, you're young, go ahead, make mistakes. Your parents will be there to support you. And um, no matter what happens, that won't follow you into your adult life. Well, um, <laughs> this proves that it does. It's, um, depending on where you go to school, depending on how strict the policing is, um, depending on how much your school district's Depending on how much your school district relies on zero tolerance policies, something as simple as fooling around or being goofy in class or something like that could end up destroying your life. And that's just ridiculous. And of course, the fact that if you're a person of color, that's so much more likely. Um, yeah, it's just ridiculous. And then Florida was mentioned so much in this um discussion that we're talking about and I didn't know that they did all this like they are the ringleader basically in this whole school to prison pipeline thing so I'm really glad that you included um all the facts about um what the Florida department did and it's just I would never send my kids to Florida I guess you know now that you mentioned that the story I told about my sister we were in Florida. You're kidding. I'm not kidding, because we lived in Florida for three years when I was in elementary school. So she was in Florida from third to, yeah, from third to fifth grade, and I was there from one to first to third grade. So, yeah, we were actually in Florida when that happened. Um, and, like, I remember, like I said, we were, we were one of the only, like, families of color at that school district, um, and it was a relatively nice neighborhood as well. Um, but one thing I remember is that I, growing up, um, quote unquote, a gifted child or whatever, um, the principal loved me because I was smart. But my sister, who was an average student and just happened to be brown, that's where she had an issue. So that kind of go back. That kind of goes back to like the No Child Left Behind Act, where. Um, if you're bringing in the test scores, you're fine. But if you're not, then you're a threat to their funding. Right. They would rather not help you. They would rather just suspend you before testing. So that's interesting. Yeah. I hadn't even connected that with all of the the mentions of Florida um, from our research. I didn't even I didn't even process that. Hey, I went to school in Florida for three years. Yeah. Something that we should touch on is that even if me, um, having a black child, I don't want them to go to public schools, how can I afford private school? You know how um, people in white districts, they can usually afford private school. So what if um, a black mother, she has a son, she wants to send him to private school, it's not always guaranteed that she can afford that, right? So then she kind of has to send him to public school. So that's another thing to look at. I know you were saying, um, you know, 
parents have to be aware of the system that they're sending them into, but sometimes they feel like they have no other choice because, you know, maybe they can't afford private school or, you know, they don't have time to homeschool. So that's just something that's really sad that parents are either kind of left with no other choice, like, you know, either your child be educated or they not. I mean, of course, everyone would pick for their child to be educated. So it's just really sad that even if parents do learn about this, I feel like they might feel like there's still not a lot that they can do about it. And there isn't. And that is why this is systemic racism. Exactly. Um, because like you said, that oftentimes parents don't have a choice. Like when I was growing up, um, like Florida, I lived in a nice neighborhood then, but I didn't always live in a nice neighborhood. Um, once my parents separated, my mom, you know, she was trying to make ends meet, single mother, two kids. And we ended up living in neighborhoods that weren't so great. And you definitely saw the difference in the funding. You definitely saw the difference in how much they cared about their students. Um, and another thing that, that comes to mind is the quality of the education. Um, the quality of the educators as well, because teachers, teachers are everything in education. And good teachers aren't rewarded enough. Teachers in general aren't rewarded enough. Um, but one story that comes to mind is that at my middle school, there was this teacher who uh, he choked a kid in the classroom because the kid was acting up. He got fed up, so he put his hands around this kid's neck. Obviously, he was no longer a teacher at the middle school, but he started teaching at the local high school instead. He was a um, coach of the baseball team. I had him in ninth grade as a teacher. And he they literally just moved him to another school in the same district. Let me guess. He was a white male. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. No punishment whatsoever. But a kid who curses at someone else's mother is sent to juvenile, juvenile detention centers. That's crazy to me. Yeah. And this was a teacher. A grown man. A grown man. And he put his hands on a sixth grader's throat. And he was just like, okay, sixth graders aren't for you. Let's try ninth grade. I mean, I know it's a reach, but that could at least be attempted murder, right? <laughs> I mean, you're, you're stopping someone's airflow. Like, he should have did some time. Yeah, honestly. And my, my cousin was actually in that classroom when that happened. So that's how I found out about it. Um, and yeah, I ended up having him as a teacher later in ninth grade and you know he was still racist um he tried to keep me from giving my final presentation by saying that he couldn't pull up the presentation for some reason and that i'm just gonna have to take the f and i'm like uh no i haven't memorized let's do it right now <laughs> so they really they really try to get you but you just you can't let them yeah and i think you mentioned that the biases of teachers in these uh, minority neighborhoods actually affects them a lot. So um, I'm glad that you brought up that story because it helps connect to what you were saying earlier. So yeah, and that was it was definitely like, at both the middle school and the high school, there was predominantly students of color. Um, with like, white people were the minority in those institutions. But I'm pretty sure, um, if memory serves, that the majority of professors were white not professors but the majority of teachers were white and like I said we got the racist ones they just really don't care about the people they're serving I feel like those teachers are serving there because other schools won't accept them 
you know, right. that's what happens when you decide to choke a kid. That's just ridiculous. I still can't believe you didn't go to jail. <laughs> yeah, it's... That's really sad, though. That just kind of shows how necessary it is for these schools to have people who understand them. Um, this kind of goes back to something we've been saying all the time on this podcast, that representation matters. Representation matters because, as you read earlier, when it comes to enforcing these zero-tolerance policies, white people are more likely to see those behaviors in white students as, you know, needs for medical attention, but the same behaviors in black students as need for punishment, which is verbatim what you said earlier. And I feel like this is just, like, proof of that. No, it is definitely. And that it just really upsets me. I know I've said this already, like, three times, but as a black woman, like, that just really upsets me. And it just makes me even uneasy that, you know, one day, of course, I'll have kids, hopefully. And it just makes me uneasy to think that they would have to go to a public school where they would experience this. Yeah, and... My story may be ridiculous, but it's not the most ridiculous story I've heard from other people in public schools. I'm sure that anyone listening out there now or even you, Janae, probably have your own ridiculous stories of instances where people of color are just punished or why people do things that are crazy and are not punished. And it just it really puts the whole like school to prison pipeline in perspective. So it's like. You may not have heard of it, but you definitely experienced it, um, which is another reason why I think it's ridiculous that this isn't common knowledge. I agree. And then even me personally, when I try to bring it up to some people who are not um, educated on the topic, I feel like sometimes people really just don't believe it. They're like, oh, I don't think that's true. Da, da, da. And I'm just like, just look it up. Like, please educate yourself and become aware of what's going on. Yeah, and it definitely is something that is true. Because, I mean, if you look at the sources of the research that we did for this episode, you have, like, the National Education Association. You have um, the American Civil Liberties Union. And you have all these people that know what they're talking about. And it's still, like, there's still going to be people that say, oh, that's not true. Well, that may be because you haven't experienced it, but it's definitely true. Exactly. So um, that being said, do you have any final thoughts on the subject? Okay, so my final thoughts are that this is definitely a great issue to bring awareness to, definitely during Black History Month. So if you were listening, I really hope that you um, learned something new. And if you're still confused, I really hope that you look up the subject on your own because this is just really something that we need to spread awareness about. This cannot keep continuing. Yeah, I agree. Um, there's definitely a lot of sources out there, a lot of credible sources out there. Um, so if you're interested in the topic or you want to learn more about it, I definitely recommend you to explore the abundance of resources that are out there. Um, like I said, this is really important because once a child is branded as a problem child, once they're introduced to the school to prison pipeline, their lives change drastically. Um, and they're basically branded for life and their lives are ruined by this school to prison pipeline that is used in order for corporations to get money and for schools to get funding and um, like we mentioned early in this podcast for the people in power to stay in power um, so it's definitely a, a huge huge part of systemic racism 
Um, That being said, this brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for tuning in. And as Janae said, hopefully you learned something new. Stay safe out there.